Well, good morning. We want to welcome you to Living Stones this morning, and we'd like to welcome all of those that are joining us live stream. How many know that in the province of Alberta, we have good news? We have great news. So if, if you're uninformed for whatever reason, uh, our premier said that on July 1, Canada Day, all restrictions in our province will be lifted, which means for us, not next Sunday, which is the 27th, but July 4th, we can tear up all the little papers that say this pew is closed. We can take off our masks and we can just have a great time. So I wanna just encourage us how blessed that really is. You know, it's, it's always great to come to the end of something. You know what's been difficult about COVID? We had no idea how long it would last. I think that's what wears people down. But once we see the finish line, right? Some of you are saying, I'm gonna get there, even if I have to crawl, right? We're gonna get to that finish line. So that's exciting. Well, we're gonna go to the Lord in prayer this morning. I'm gonna wish all the fathers a happy Father's Day. And then also today, wasn't it great to just celebrate our Heavenly Father? Is he not amazing? He is so gracious, so good, and so kind. And I, I believe today we're gonna to hear a lot about relationships. And you know, what I, need, what I love about the scriptures, what I love about the nature of God, he's a relational God. It's all about relationships with him. And he's interested in connecting with us. So let's stand and we're gonna pray. I believe God's gonna do amazing work in our hearts this morning. We've had uh, already a great service here at the, earth, the first service, great response. And I believe God's gonna do more in this service. He's just going to continue to do what he began. So Father, I just thank you this morning that your goodness uh, knows no limit in our lives. Every morning we wake up and we can look for the mercy that you're going to provide that day because you said uh, every morning there are new mercies. And I just thank you for that. And then at the close of a day, we can look back and say, Lord, you certainly have been faithful. I pray this morning that you would open our hearts. And I pray for the broken, wounded places of our soul, Lord, that you want to do an amazing work of healing, of restoration, of reconciliation, not only with you, but also with one another. And I pray that that process would begin in a very profound way today. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, and God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. How many recognize, uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm trying to come up with snappy new titles. Anybody notice that's a big change in my life? But, uh, you know, I had to think about this one, and I entitled this sermon, Bring It On, Fighting Fairly. Because how many know that there's always going to be differences of opinion in life? And I think we're living in a culture today that really has a difficult time with differences. As a matter of fact, I don't think people today really know how to work them out. And so we see a lot more polarization, more fragmentation, more anger, more frustration, and a lot more loneliness and a lot more inability to work through issues. And so I'm so thankful that when we have these moments in our lives where we can turn back to the word of God, we can actually learn how to developing develop meaningful relationships. And, I, and I, I recognize as well that the transformation of our society, you know, there was a day when a lot of people were married, but as we move along in our culture, more and more people are single. And that's the reality. And so instead of just talking about marriage, which we will talk about this morning, we're also gonna talk about just relationships in general. Because I believe what applies to this text in 1 Peter chapter three actually applies in all kinds of relationships. And I believe that many of us 
probably need some of these skills to bring about resolution in a lot of broken relationships today. So we're going to look and glean from Peter's instruction in the first century, bring it over to the 21st century, and begin to apply some of the truths that we're going to find there. You know, I, I think today relationships are struggling. And probably one of the most uh, challenging and most rewarding relationship are the ones that are the closest to us. And we can start with our married uh, marriages. We can talk, talk about our spouses. But we can also move beyond that to just our children, our family, our extended family. We can talk about friendship, how critical that is, how important and meaningful that really is. That's what makes life worth living. And we find that it, it's interesting in both Testaments, old and new, that marriage was a metaphor to describe the relationship that God has with us. So even if I'm not married, I really need to understand the nature of marriage because it'll give me a glimpse into my understanding of how intimate my relationship and your relationship will be with Almighty God. It's that close. It's that amazing. So God desires to be close to each and every one of us. I think marriage is a place where we learn to pour our lives for one another. And when children come along to increase our capacity for generosity, we can learn how to give. Yet it's also the relationship, I think, where we're the most uh, exposed and vulnerable. It's the place that brings the greatest joy, but also can bring the pl- a place that can bring the greatest pain. And I, I'm not going to just say that about marriage. I think the closer you get to people, the more joy that can come from those relationships, and yet there can be times of misunderstanding. And I believe that when that happens, that's where the great pain enters into our lives. So we're not going to just focus on the problem today. You know, that, I'm just... Uh, basically making an argument why we need to hear this. What we need to learn is the skills, how to have these meaningful relationships, how to have healthy relationships, how to get healthy in our own personal life so that we can carry that over into relationships with other people. So how can we work at making uh, critical relationships Uh, marriage, and other close relationships work? How can we not just make them work, but how can we have vibrant, exciting, thriving relationships? How many like to say, that's the kind of relationships I want? They're healthy, they're thriving, they're meaningful, they're purposeful, it's making joy, it's filling my life full of joy because, you know, it's the people that are in my life that's enhancing it. And I believe that God wants us to have those kinds of things. So let's take a look at how we can overcome some of those challenges and obstacles that we run into. We're going to find this in Peter's letter in chapter 3. Peter's writing to uh, husbands and wives here. But really, it's a continuity between the theme that he's been bringing out all the way through 1 Peter. And some of you that have been walking with me through this series are realizing he keeps talking about submission. Anybody figure out that's kind of the key word in Peter keeps bringing submit, submit, submit. And uh, he just carries that theme over. He's talked to us about submitting to those in authority and how difficult that is many times when we don't agree with those in authorities to actually yield and to submit. And actually to have a culture where, you know, where nobody wants to submit to anybody, you have a culture where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. You've got anarchy in the land, and you've got a lot of unhappy campers, and people just get angry and frustrated and upset, and we're seeing a lot of that today. But you know what? I think if we can learn these these core attitudes that God wants us to get to understand. And Peter now brings this from last week. He's talking about slavery, and I tried to help us understand how that was a very unjust or unjust institution. 
And we talked about how did we overcome injustices. Now this week we're going to talk about how to build healthy, meaningful relationships. Or how to have a fair fight. In other words, how to resolve differences. Because you know what, let's face it. You know, we need to be able to learn to have relationships with people who don't all think like us. As a matter of fact, it's kind of boring, I'm gonna say it this way, it's kind of boring to only know people that think exactly like you think. Man, I, I would actually argue that probably doesn't even exist. Because I know that for a fact because when people are married they do have differences. And that does come out in their relationships. And even the best of friends have different ways of seeing things. So God is not opposed to diversity of thought. What God is hoping for is unity of purpose, unity of, in our relationships, and the psalmist tells us how good and pleasant it is when people dwell together in unity. It's a beautiful thing. It produces life itself, and so we're gonna look at this. So let's take a look at Peter's words in chapter three, just the first seven verses there. He starts out, wives in the same way. So he's continuing his thoughts from chapter two. Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now, I'm gonna stop there and just say this. This isn't just applicable to wives and husbands. This is applicable to any relationship. If you really wanna impact people around you and you've already talked to them and they're not listening, probably the most profound way to reach them is by your life. And we're gonna take a look at, they says here in verse two, when they see the purity and reverence of your life. So in other words, when people see the way you live, it's the strongest argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And actually, Peter is making that whole presentation that the reason why we submit to these people in, in, in positions of authority is so that we can make a case for the gospel. That's the motivation, that's the reason, so that you and I can bring honor to God. And we're gonna to talk today about moving from a platform where it's about me and my rights and what I'm entitled to, to moving over to another platform that says, I'm living for the sake of the gospel, for the glory and honor of God, for living for a higher purpose than just ourselves. And it means moving from here to there. We're gonna look at that. It says, your beauty should not just come from an outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Sorry, Curtis. Uh, he's a jeweler. Uh, what, what I'm saying is our culture is totally enamored with outward appearance. But he goes on to talk here. He says, that shouldn't be what's driving our lives. He's not suggesting we don't look nice. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is rather it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do, not do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So let's take a look here this morning, basically, at two keys for a healthy relationship. And obviously, the first one is marriage. So it, it includes marriages. It includes family relationship. It includes friendships, it includes business associates, it includes relating to strangers. I believe these principles transcend into every human interaction. 
So what are the two keys to having healthy relationships with people? They're both attitude. They're both to do with our attitude. The first one is having a submissive attitude. And what we need to understand is that this is a voluntary thing on our part. This is not something that you know, we're being compelled to do. This is Peter saying to us, this is the way to make the gospel real to people. This is the way to make the reality of God known in a culture that can't get it, that's not living in obedience to God. So submitting is the exact opposite of self-assertion and the demanding of our rights. Now, when you look at our culture today, wouldn't you say that that's kind of where we're camped right now? There's a lot of self-assertion. We're being told to assert ourselves and we're told to demand our rights. And you know, we have a culture today that's doing an excellent job of doing that. And yet there's a growing frustration with people because if they don't get their way, they get upset, right? There's a lot of anger. You can sense a lot of resentment, a lot of frustration, a lot of bitterness, and a lot of unforgiveness. And there's a lot of, you know what the casualty rate is? Broken relationships everywhere. Marriage is coming undone. You know, people are divided. Even within the church family, people can easily divide because they don't agree with something. And then they just write each other off. There's isolationism. And that is so tragic. Uh, Walls and Anders in their commentary on Peter said, it involves being satisfied at times with less than one may deserve or claim as a right. In other words, they're giving up something for a greater good. You know, it, you know think about it. Who is the person that probably emulates this above every other person? Well, it's Jesus, isn't he? He's the one that left heaven. He was God. He became a man. He limited himself. As God, he was everywhere present at one time, but now as a human being, he's limited to one spot at one time. There was all of the human limitations. He limited many of his elements as God. You know, he didn't know everything. Jesus said, I don't know about the times or the seasons, only my Father in heaven. He, he created what he called self-limitations in order to fulfill something for the good of other people. And see, that's what submission is. It's not about I'm giving up a bunch of things, you know, and I'm the loser. No, I'm becoming like Christ, and for a greater good, I'm limiting myself to help other people. It's a whole different way of approaching life. Scott McKnight rightly points out, one specific point we can make is that the principle of living for the sake of the gospel is transcultural. In other words, the submission is for the sake of the gospel. It, it transcends time and it transcends every culture. And what's happening in our world today is we are developing a far more, uh, how would I say it, multicultural ethnic development, even in our own country. I'll tell you, the world is shrinking very dramatically. And you got people coming from all over the world. They all are in different head spaces. They all see life through different lenses. They've all been enculturated by their, where they grew up and how they see life and their value system. This is what's happening. And what I'm gonna argue today is, uh, as a child of God, as a Christian, what the scriptures are trying to get across to us is that you and I need to lay aside 
our, in, in a sense, our enculturation and begin to embrace a new value system. That you and I need to embrace the values that God wants to uh, impart to us so that when we look at people, we're looking through a different lens now. We're seeing people through the eyes of God. We're seeing them through the eyes of Jesus. All of a sudden, our hearts are filled with compassion and we're showing dignity and value and respect to people because that's exactly what God does for every human being. God is, God is a lover of people. God loves the different cultures and expressions of it, but God is trying to take what's in those cultures that are unhealthy and move us towards what he designed and desired for us right from the very beginning when he created us. He desires to be healthy and whole and he wants us to reflect his nature and his goodness. Now some of you are probably watching uh, this series called The Chosen. How many have actually heard about it and you maybe are looking at it? And you know, I love that series and I'll tell you why. Because you know, as I've done a lot of studying on, on the Bible and I'm looking at some of the cultural aspects and the way they're portraying Jesus, I'm going, man, they're doing such a phenomenal job of it. So I'm, I'm highly recommending it. And what I love is the character of Jesus. Now, how many, when you're watching Jesus come into that, if you've seen it, I mean, is he not the most loving, kind, gracious? He seems to absorb the hurts and the pain and the sorrows and the, and the, the angst and the misunderstandings of people. He just kind of moves in like that. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the Jesus that I believe in. He's, he's being portrayed very well. And I think he's reflecting the portrait of the New Testament as an actor very, very well. And I think that's powerful. So what I'm saying is our culture should not be defining our lives, our motives, and our behaviors. We ought to live in such a way that God is glorified because of the manner of life we're living. The good news not only needs to be communicated verbally, but many people today in our culture who are becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear you. And so how they're going to see it is it demonstrated by us living the life. As a matter of fact, here it says the wives are to cultivate an inward beauty. And the inward beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I think that's fascinating because when we read this, I want to argue that that's not just true of a wife towards her husband. I think that concept is true for all Christians. As a matter of fact, um, when you and I develop that kind of an attitude, we have the submissive attitude. You know, we don't have to demand our way and our rights. It's because we're demonstrating we have absolute confidence in God. Our trust is in God. We believe God's going to be vindicating us, defending us, caring for us. He's the one that's going to do that. It reveals our true confidence and deep trust in his care for us in the midst of all of these relationships. So the concept of gentleness and the restraint of words is a virtue expressed even in the Old Testament. Isn't it amazing when I was preaching through Proverbs and I spent, what, 39 sermons through that book? It's a lot. One of the things I came across, and I wrote my thesis on you know, communications from the book of Proverbs, one of the things that they bring across is this idea of restraint, a restraint of words, a restraint of behavior where we, we weren't extreme and you know, you know, carrying on. As a matter of fact, you're considered a wise person if you speak less. You know, people who talk all the time, they're bound to say something wrong, the Proverbs teach us. You know, many words you're going to sin, it says. 
we get ourselves into trouble. Isn't it interesting in the New Testament here, the servant of God is described exactly the way the submissive wife is being described here by Peter. It says in uh, uh, Timothy, Paul is writing, he says, and this Lord's servant, which is any one of us who are serving Christ, must not be quarrelsome. We shouldn't be an argumentative person. That should not be part of our nature. If it is, we need to say, God, help us. I need to settle down a little bit. But we must be kind to everyone. You know, that's been one of my focal points here recently. I've been just thinking, Lord, help me to become more kind. You know, and now lately, I've been, when I'm working on this sermon, I'm saying, I need to learn to be more gentle. You know, I'm just concentrating on this because it says we must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. How many think that a lot of our our relational issues are because we're dealing with unresolved brokenness and hurts in our lives and there's there's a little bit of resentment inside of us and it comes out in our behavior, it comes out in our words, it comes out in the way we relate to people. If you got these issues inside of your own soul, it's gonna come out towards other people, maybe not even the person that's hurt you, but it's gonna come out in some way. He goes on to say, opponents must be what? Gently instructed. No, we shouldn't be, you know, fighting with them, you know. Uh, in hope that God will grant them repentance. The idea is we can't change anybody. It's the hope that God is gonna give them a change of mind. Leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that interesting? So the best way to win and influence people is through consideration, kindness, and gentleness. Often the best argument is demonstrated more by our way of life than by our words. And that's exactly what Peter's telling us here in this this text. He... uh, as a matter of fact, he goes on, a gentle and quiet spirit is persuasive and attractive and it can only come from someone who is confident that God is ultimately in control and is entrusting themselves to God to work out what is best. And that comes from a submitted heart to God. So what I'm arguing is, the one way, you know, we could say, well, I'm really submitted to God, but I fight with everybody else. And I would go, no, you're not submitted to God at all. You know, you're just, you're fooling yourself. And I think that's what's happening a lot of times as Christians. We're going, well, yeah, well, you know, I'm submitted to God, but I'm, I'm, I'm against this, and I'm against that, and I'm not submitted to anybody else. And I'm going, no. Part of your way of reflecting that you are confident in the submission to God is when he says, hey, do, do these things. Peter's saying, look, submit to those in authority. Yeah, but I don't agree with them. It doesn't talk about agreeing. As a matter of fact, I think it's fascinating that Paul tells slaves to submit to harsh masters. How many go, that's not fair, pastor. I talked about that last week in justice. This week I'm saying, hey, submit to your husband. Yeah, well, listen listen to what Peter does here. See, in the ancient world, Christianity was just beginning. So what happens is a woman gives her life to Christ, but her husband's still not a Christian. Now what? You know, and I said last week that she was compelled to follow his religion. And yet Peter's not telling her to do that. But what he is telling her to do is have a gentle and quiet spirit. He's telling her to submit that way. He's giving her the way to go about doing it. As a matter of fact, this whole idea of submission is from the Greek word hypotasso, and it literally means to subordinate our rights. In other words, don't, you know, we're laying, we're laying aside our rights just like Jesus did. You know, conflict is usually... Uh, developed over the issue of control. All, as a matter of fact, I, I actually did a seminary course on conflict. And one of the statements that really impacted me was that all conflict is over control. 
See, so if you have to have your way, you're going to have a lot of conflict. But if you're more relaxed about life and, you know, hey, you know, listen, I'm more concerned about, you know, God's will being done and, and you're gentle about it and you're, you know, you're, you're winsome and you're patient. It's very amazing how many good things begin to happen uh, in people's lives. So Peter now is going to describe three areas of submission that's going to enrich relationships. And the first area is seen in, in behavior. In, in this case, the behavior of the wife, who's, you know, like I said, this is not a, an easy person to submit to because the Bible says here in verse one, it says, submit to your own, own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word. In other words, this is an unbeliever. But I, I'm gonna point out something to you, and I like how Thomas Schreiner, who's a commentator, says, it could be more accurately translated who does not obey the word, apateo. And how many know that, you can see why some translators go, well, yeah, well that's people who are disobedient don't believe. I'm going, yeah, you're right, they don't. Because when you really believe God, you're gonna obey God. And so a lot of Christians are a little confused because they say, well, I believe, but if you're believing and not obeying, you're not really believing. Are you following what I just said there? If you tell me, I believe, but I don't do what he's telling me to do, I'm going, no, you don't believe. That's because you're evidencing it by your disobedience. If you really believed it, you would do what you're told. See? So what do you, I, you know, sometimes a wife will come in, she goes, you know, my husband says he's a Christian, but I don't even know if he is because he doesn't do what it says. I'm going, it doesn't really matter. Just treat him like a non-believer. He's disobedient anyways. Well, well, then they say, well, now what do I do? I said, here, Peter tells you what to do. Well, yeah, but, you know, I've been trying to get him straightened out. I've been telling him and telling him he's not listening. I'm going, that's the problem. Because you see, what Peter says here is that you, you're supposed to be won over without words by the behavior. You know, what happens when you keep telling somebody something? People just ignore you. You know, they just, you know, you know, you know why people do that? You know why people keep repeating themselves or restating themselves or their volume goes up? Because in the past, they've used that form to manipulate other people. It's the idea of the squeaky wheel gets what it wants. But can I just say something? It does work, but then it doesn't work. It works in the sense that people finally do what you want them to do to get you out of their, get rid of that noise. But what, the, what it causes inside of them is this resentment and alienation from that person harping on them. And it actually does more damage to the relationship than good. So that's a very poor strategy to actually try to get your way in something. So I'm saying don't do that, it doesn't work. As a matter of fact, the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs says through patience, a ruler or a non-obedient husband to God or you know, a friend who's not listening to God, or a political leader who's obviously not listening to God, can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Well, that's a very fascinating proverb. Yeah, I, I read that so many times, I'm going, what is this, the gentle tongue breaks a bone? What does that really mean anyways? You know, so, you know, because I'm not that smart, I go to smart people. So I'm reading this commentator, because I go into commentaries and start reading, and Dwayne uh, Garrett says this, the bones 
And he points this out, and once, once I read this, I go, oh yeah, it makes total sense now. He says, the bones are the most rigid body parts inside of a person, and fracturing the bones here refers to breaking down the deepest, most hardened resistance to an idea a person may possess. Do you want to get through to people who are hardened and resistance to an idea? How do you do it? With gentleness. With gentleness. So if we're not gentle, we're probably not going to get through. And what do we tend to do when we get frustrated with people? We don't, we don't tend to be gentle. We get frustrated, we get upset, we get angry, and it, it, we're not operating in gentleness anymore. And all it's doing is alienating. How many go, I just learned something. I gotta approach my uh, per- people, otherwise I'm gonna alienate these people. Okay, now, I just wrote down here, don't amp up the volume. <laughs> yeah, that's not the way to do it. Now, Wayne Gruden says about being Sarah's daughter, he says, Peter's insistence on doing right is a reminder that no act of disobedience in Sarah's life is to be imitated by a Christian wife. In her submission to her husband, really what she's doing is putting her trust in God, and that's what Peter is commending. So this is not a wife just doing whatever her husband says. This is not what submission is, okay? So how do you get people to do What's the right thing? Well, when people are not listening, we need to take it to a higher court of appeal. And we need to leave that person in the hands of God. See, God is the highest court of appeal, right? So you go to God, how do you do that? In prayer, okay? You entrust people to God, and that takes what? Faith and patience. Now, what do we generally lack in this culture? Patience, thank you very much. You know, we have all kinds of faith, but we have no patience. My argument is your faith is really, really small. Big faith has much patience. So here we are, we're taking this to God in prayer. But how many know that, uh, that a lot of times we just feel like, well, yeah, but God's not doing anything. Yeah, but God's exercising patience in our life. He's developing something inside of us. Not only praying, but this is the biggest thing that I'm learning right now. You know, a lot of times when we pray, we pray, we pray, we're saying the same prayer. But God, why don't we try praying by thanking God for what we believe God's going to do in that person's life. So in other words, I'm praying, Lord, help this person to become more sensitive. But now I'm going to move away from that, and I'm going to start praying in faith. And I'm going to say, Lord, I want to thank you for making that person more sensitive. And I'm starting to thank God for the results. Not just I'm asking for the results. I'm thanking God because I believe that that is God's will for everyone's life as a believer. And that they'll become more sensitive and more understanding. That's a powerful way of not just praying for that, but to actually thank God for that. The second area of enhancing relationships is the area of appearance. Now, we're not talking about just outward appearance here. Actually, Peter's talking about inner spiritual development. Isn't that the point? I mean, you know, our world is totally external. And I always feel bad because, you know, there's so much pressure today on the look, you know. And a lot of young girls, you know, they're starving themselves to death or whatever they're doing. It's just because there's so much pressure by so many people in the culture to say, this is what the perfect look looks like. Can I just tell you it's all a lie? That's not what you should be focusing in on. So I want to just free everybody from that right now and say, look, you want to focus in on something. Here's the look you're going for. It's an inner look. It's the right kind of heart. And I think that's where, you know, as Christians now, we need to work harder on that, the inside stuff. Uh, that's what needs to be changed. So the real key to seeing another person influenced by your life is not to go about changing them, 
but to allow God to work changes in you. See, let me just say it this way. How many say, and honestly say this, you're working on something in your own life right now. You maybe have a little struggle, you're trying to change in an area. How many, that's true. You actually can identify something you probably could work on. Anybody? How many recognize that it's actually difficult? How many can honestly admit, it's really hard to change? Isn't that true? How many here are willing to admit it's hard to change yourself? Why are we so hard on other people and we want them to change, but we're really easy on ourselves? We don't even try changing. You, you can't change anybody else. All you can do is manipulate them. Stop doing that. It's wrong. It's unhealthy. You're sending the wrong message. You're saying, I don't love you for who you are. I'll love you if you're like this now. That's, that's wrong. It's evil. It's not Christian. Here's what I need to be doing. I'm saying, okay, God, what is it in my life that you want me to cooperate with your spirit to bring about change in my life? And what happens is, as I am working on this and there's a change happening inside of me, as I am changing, listen to me, everybody around me starts changing. You go, well, why are they changing? Because you are now treating people differently than what you were before, so people's response to you changes. Wow. So if you want to change the world, start by changing yourself. Write that one down. That's a good point. Okay. Peter points out that he's not forbidding these women to dress nicely. That's not the point of the thing. He's not talking like that. Rather, he's pointing out that the beauty, uh, the source of her beauty is an inward adorning. And that's the source of all of our beauty. Lionheart Gulpit says this, the hidden person is not the inside of the person, but the whole human being as it's determined from within. Now, I want to just say something, because, you know, I, I hear this so much, and I, I've said it. So, you know, part of growing and maturing is learning. So I want to just explain something to us, that part of the development of the Christian life is that we're coming into a deeper union and communion with God, but we're also learning about God in his ways and we're getting a better understanding, okay? We're growing in knowledge and in the grace. Knowledge and grace, okay? So now all of a sudden, you know, we, we start understanding that there's a lot of Greek thinking that's come into Christianity because the New Testament's written in Greek. The Greeks had a great cultural influence and so a lot of Platonism came into Christianity. And Platonism is a dualism. And so I'm going to show you how it affected the church. So in the early church, eventually, there was a tension going on because some people thought that the spiritual person, the spiritual life, the inner life, was really good, but the outer man, the flesh, our outer body, was evil. Material things were evil. And so you could see the church eventually went into monastic thinking, and there was a lot of self-denying and suppressing of the outer person. And they thought that was more spiritual. Can I tell you that that's part of the dualistic, platonic thinking? It's wrong. Let's go back to, you know, who were these writers? They were all Jewish people. They had a Hebrew understanding. You see, in the Old Testament... The heart is your inner being. It's the essence of who you are. And I, you know, I've said this before as, as well, and I'm gonna try to correct this right now. Listen very carefully. I, I hear this comment, you know, I, I know in my head it's just gotta get to my heart. That's a, that's a platonic, dualistic concept. Okay, move away from that thinking. What you're saying is, I know the right thing to do, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> that's all you're telling me. 
You see, your heart is, includes your mind, your emotions, and your will. It's your inner being. It's who you really are. And so what he's saying is what needs to change is this inner man, this inner life, this understanding, and I act on it by the, the will. And so I get people sometimes going, I, I know I should forgive this person, but I don't feel like it, so I don't. That's disobedience, plain and simple. Well, I don't, I don't think it would be, here's the argument. Yeah, but if I don't feel it, it wouldn't be real forgiveness, wouldn't it? And I go, yes, it would. Because it's not determined based on how you feel. It's the right thing to do. It's what God asks us to do. Your emotions eventually catch up with your will and your understanding. So I say, I know I should do this. I make the decision I'll do it even though I don't feel like doing it. And when I do it, my emotions start crossing and catching up to, you know, in a sense, my emotions, you know, they're gonna catch up to what I'm doing. After a while, I'm going, I'm so glad I did the right thing. How many have ever felt like at times you've resisted something, you were successful in resisting, and then later on you said, thank God I did the right thing? Anybody feel that way afterwards? Yeah, of course. We always feel good about that. We go, that was the right thing to do. That's what I'm pointing out. And so there's this inner life that's getting changed. The third area of responsibility for enriching relationships is our attitude. We've already been talking about that. It's the submissive attitude. Now, one of the reasons why people don't want to do this is they're afraid that they'll be taken advantage of. How many say that's probably true? If I submit and yield, people will take advantage of me, you know, and I don't want that to happen. Now, I'm going to just say something to all of us. You and I are making that decision. You and I will suffer at times consequences for doing the right thing. As a matter of fact, I'm going to argue that suffering is a part of this life. You might as well decide, am I going to suffer for the wrong things or am I going to suffer for the right things? And so I'm arguing that we should suffer for the right things and that there are some things that we're saying, this is not the hill to die on. I need to lay aside my, my own feelings here, my own desires here, and just say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I can, you know, I can, I can handle this. I can live without this. I can accept that I'm going to give this to God. If he, if he wants to justify this or he wants to go the way I think it should go, it'll happen. I don't have to worry about that. God is ultimately in control, not me and not this other person. I just got to trust God with it. And it happens that way. God will work it out. Now, to clarify what I'm saying, what this does not mean, because sometimes you got to say things, what it doesn't mean, because people walk away and go, oh, I got to submit and everything. But David Helm says something very interesting. He said, uh, this does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should do so. No, it doesn't mean that. He's not saying that. As a matter of fact, he's telling her the opposite. He's telling her, no, you need to model the Christian life, okay? It does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin, you should do so. No, you should say, I'm sorry, there's a higher authority. It does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a differing viewpoint. No, I don't think that's right either. I think that part of being in partnership is saying, I don't agree with you in this point. Let's talk about it but let's do it in a gracious, considerate, and a gentle way, not a full-blown argument, right? And it's okay at the end of the day to say, you know what, but I'm not, you know, if you, you know, this is my viewpoint, and let's sleep on it. You know, one of our biggest problems is we don't spend enough time thinking about our decisions. Sometimes we should just, how many know the next day you, life seems different? How many have ever experienced that? You know, a lot of times I'll just, I, I've had people put pressure on me to make a decision, I'll say things like, let me think about that. 
and I don't get back to them that same day. I'll think about it, and I'll, it's in my mind, and I go to bed, and I don't think I'm thinking about it, and I wake up, and I have a whole thought about it. How many have ever had that experience? Because now you're processing, and you're letting yourself chance to really consider the ramifications of these decisions. We make a lot of hasty decisions. You know, it does not mean that if he's unfaithful to you, you are left without biblical recourse. No, I think that there is a responsibility there, and there's something that should be done. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, you must remain quietly in the home and accept daily cruelty of that relationship at all costs. No, I, I, th- I think there's some responsibility that needs to be taken. And you can go talk to some people and receive the help needed to move past that. Now let me move on to the second key attitude, and that's the consideration. Here in verse 7 it says, The husband must be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Uh, what does this really mean? It means that as a husband, I need to you know, be concerned about Patty, my wife, and her needs and her emotions and how she feels about things and not just go trampling along and doing my own thing and who cares what she thinks. That creates a recipe for unrest and uh, unhappy relationships. No, we, we're, we're in this together. We're sharing life together. As a matter of fact, he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, probably Peter's thinking of physiological weakness, like, you know, physically she's probably weaker. But that's not even always true nowadays, is it? No. And it doesn't mean that she's, you know, not not as smart as the husband. Of course not. There's a lot of wives that are far smarter than their husbands. So we know that's not true. His point is, he's calling her a partner. And I like what one commentator said, if the wife is weaker than the husband has to be weak as well. How many know we're all weak? Maybe we just need to go to God and accept that. Maybe we need to find out that my wife is strong in this area and weak in this area, and I'm strong in this area, and I'm weak in this area. Maybe we need to talk about that and work together at figuring out how we can compensate for one another's weaknesses and embrace each other's strengths and not see it as a uh, tug of war all the time, and we're working together in this relationship. How powerful is that? Peter relates how we're to show consideration, especially in this most intimate of relationship. It's more than just living at the same address. You know, I, I think it's uh, important here that we have to live with them according to knowledge. The knowledge here could include uh, any knowledge that would be beneficial to the husband and wife relationship, the knowledge of God's purposes and principles for marriage, knowledge of the wife's desires, goals, and frustrations, knowledge of her strengths and weaknesses in the physical, emotional, and spiritual realms. In other words, we need to know this person that we're relating to. But I'm, I'll, I'll move it past marriage. I think the more we know of the people we're relating to and the more we understand people and the more we you know, try to help each other, the healthier, the better, the richer, the more meaningful all of our relationships will be. But let me move on here and just say this, that uh, the second area here is, I just skipped over a part here, it's okay, is that we need to show consideration by treating other people with respect. And uh, I think, that love grows out of an attitude of honoring people. How many know that's true? When we honor one another, when we decide someone is valuable. You know, that decision is a major first step in acting out our love for that person. I agree with Wayne Gruden on that. That's so powerful. And I'm gonna just uh, 
make a statement here because I'm running out of time. But uh, one of the things that I think we need to do is learn how to pray with our spouse. And, you know, I'm going to just admit my own feelings in this area. And I, you know, I've always prayed, you know, as a pastor, even as a Bible school student, even before I was in ministry. Patty would always pray. But the thing that we did was we'd pray with our kids, but we never really prayed together very often. And, you know, one day Patty challenged me just not that long ago and said, you know, why don't you ever pray with me? And uh, I, had to, I had to ask for forgiveness because I had, she initiated this. But I want to just say that what I'm noticing, that when couples come to me with problems, the first thing I, I now say to them, are you praying together? And every couple that's having problems, most of them say no. I would say 90 whatever percent. I, if there's one, I'd be shocked because I, I haven't heard it yet. And I say, how many have discovered that praying with your spouse is the hardest thing in the world? Anybody figured that out yet? And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going I'm to try to help you with this. Listen to what the scripture says. One chases a thousand Two chases, 10,000. So when I was praying for something, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm battling. You know, that's, that's about 1,000. Patty, I said, hey, why don't we pray for this person? And she'd be praying privately. That's 1,000 more. 1,000 and 1,000 is 2,000. But when she and I get together and we pray, 10,000. So something's starting to happen. And I've noticed in the last, what, year and a half? Two years that since Patty and I are praying all the time, it seems like we're praying a lot, and it seems like we're praying more than once in the day. But what's happening is we're seeing amazing answers to prayer. We have seen probably more dramatic answers to prayer in the last two years. It's just amazing what's happening. But here's the, here's the benefit of this. When you, and, when, and, I, and this isn't just a spouse. If you have a good friend, pray with them. You know, just start praying with them and pray about the issues that you're struggling with. If you're a single person, find a person that you can become a prayer partner with and just start praying with them. What happens is when you're praying with someone, it's a very vulnerable place to be because you're sharing needs. And it, it all of a sudden, we don't relate to people in their strengths. We connect with people in their weaknesses. How many know that's true? That's how we relate to people. We don't realize that. We're intimidated by people's strengths, but we feel close to people when they share, you know, I've struggled with this, and immediately go, yeah, I can relate to you. You know, it's like, I'm struggling too, I can relate to you. I'm saying to you, when you start praying together, it, it opens up a whole new vista of communication. And all of a sudden, on a social, emotional, uh, psychological level, your communication moves in a whole new direction. And you get so much closer to each other, it's unbelievable. And so I have felt a lot closer to Pat in the last two years. This has really been amazing how dramatic it was. You know, God figured this out, designed it this way. And that's why the enemy is going to do everything in his power to keep you two from praying together. Because your best prayer partner is your spouse. And so now I find myself, every time I'm talking to people, I'll say, yeah, Patty and I will pray for you. I don't even say, I'll pray for you anymore. I don't even think that way. I come home, I say, Patty, we've got to pray for so-and-so, and we just start praying for them. You know, it's really kind of neat. So we're, 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 we're boosting our ability to really relate to each other in a powerful way. So that's one of the little things I wanted to share with you. The other thing I've noticed is uh, when we are relating to people, and respecting people and showing consideration to people. You know what we're doing? We're loving people. But you know what? A lot of us in this room, I'm, I'm going to close with this. So I'm closing the service with this thought. And I want to I do what I did in the first service. I want to ask the question, how many here, you know 
that you're not worthy of God's love. How many here know that you're not worthy of God's love? Okay. How many here, you feel, you feel that deeply in your life? You still feel like, you know, God doesn't really love me. How many here struggle with the fact that God loves you? How many here? Just raise your hand. Just be honest. You struggle with the fact that God loves you. Can I just say something? I just had you understand. None of us in this room are worthy of God's love. Okay? Our problem is we look at ourselves and we say, as an object of love, I'm not worthy of his love. I'm trying to tell you right now, there's not a single person on the planet that's worthy of God's love. But the Bible says that God chooses to love us. And when we receive that love, what happens is it changes something on the inside of us. So right now, we're going to pray as we're closing. I want everyone that just said to me, I struggle with the fact that God really loves me. I know it intellectually, but I'm struggling with that even emotionally. I just don't feel a sense of worth. I feel, a, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm putting myself down. I, I want you to st stop looking at yourself right now. I want you to close your eyes. Stop looking at yourself. I want you to think like this. I want to receive your love right now, Father. I want you to manifest that love in my life. I'm receiving your love, and I'm going to stop loathing myself because right now I recognize there's not a single person on the planet that deserves it but your nature is such that you love me and I'm receiving that love right now now I'm going to tell you why I'm making you do this it's so important you understand that you're loved by God I'm praying father that you'll make that real in every one of our hearts because if we cannot receive your love we have a difficult time loving other people you see, the reason why it says husbands love your wives, but here's what Jesus said. He told us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. If you don't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. If you don't love yourself as a husband, you can't love your wife. It's so powerful. It's so critical we get this fundamental, basic truth inside of our lives. Now, I want you to think about somebody right now. God's going to bring this person to mind. You're struggling with these, this person as an individual. You're struggling with them, with the fact that they've wounded you, they've hurt you, they've uh, basically treated you poorly. Maybe they have abused you or violated you, or worse yet, they've just neglected you as a person. They've just pushed you, they shelved you, they abandoned you, or they've isolated themselves from you. You, you can think of some people right now, there's woundedness in that area. I want you to right now say, Father, I'm making a decision to forgive that person right now. And I pray that you will give me the grace right now, not only to forgive them, but to pray your blessing and grace into their lives. I want you to help me to love them. I want you to help me to love them the way you love them. Not because they're worthy of, the, their, of my love, because there's not a person worthy of love, but because your love lives and reigns and rules in my heart, I'm choosing to love this other person. This is so critical. And I'm going to close with these words. And this is what I, I, I wrote at the very end here. Relationships are the key to a meaningful life. They give us purpose. We are here to serve God primarily by serving other people. 
If I don't have a good relationship, if I have a, a broken relationship with someone, it's impairing my relationship with God. In our rights-oriented world, often driven by the oppression produced by the sinful nature, we quickly make life about our needs when the reality is that the Christian life is about laying down our rights in order to best serve others. Fighting fairly means that we don't always have to be right or to have our way. It means being respectful and gentle in our remarks towards others. It means accepting that people may continue to have a different point of view, but that does not make them our enemies. It means learning to show consideration and entrusting our concerns to our Heavenly Father. It means praying for others and with others. And when we learn that it's not all about us, but how we reflect the gospel through our lives and words for the sake of God's honor and the sake of showing consideration to others, we will have healthier personal relationships beginning in our homes, with our families, and with our friends, and even our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.